the Republican financial plan is like being a waiter and coming to the table and saying, by the way, if you'd like, we've got a Republican plan for your dinner. I'm going to put enough poison in your dinner to kill you. And the Democratic plan is we'll sure. offer you more poison than that. Either way, you're dead. Florida is a really interesting case because it's the largest orange juice or it's the largest orange crop producer in the world. And for the very first time this year, California is going to beat us. The existing home sales market is basically frozen shut. When he's been screaming higher for longer and the whole market said, ah, he doesn't mean it. He's going to pause. He's going to pivot. Right. We've heard all that. I'm like, no, no, no. The reason I believe this is because I think Powell is terrified of being the next Arthur Burns and he wants to be the next Volcker. Rental uh, prices uh, will moderate and chip away at that sticky OER. Their storage may be 90% full, Mm. but that 90% is only 25% of what they use during the whole winter. everyone and welcome to the week ahead. My name is Tony Nash. Today we're joined by David Cervantes, Gary Brody, and Tracy Shukart. Um, gosh, we've, we've got a lot to cover this week. Uh, first is housing. And David is telling us that it's time to pay attention to housing. When everyone was freaking out last year, David had a, a very cool head and now he's starting to, to pay a lot more attention to it. Uh, Gary's going to talk about talk to us about the Fed and bond vigilantes which I think will be a really interesting discussion. And then Tracy uh, is going to talk to us about soft commodities. You may be able to get a little bit talk about the NAC gas stuff that happened this week, but uh, but we'll talk about soft commodities and why they're, um, they're rallying so hard. Everyone, we're having a quick promotion for our CI Markets platform. This is our platform that forecasts currencies, commodities, equity indices, individual stocks, and global economics. Uh, right now, you can get 40% off a prepaid annual subscription. It's a limited time deal. Um, that brings the price down from our normal $500 a year to $300 a year. Visit completeintel.com slash save200. Use the promo code SAVE200 at checkout. The deal is designed to help you better plan your portfolio and see the forecast of your investments and global markets. And it's our way of saying thank you for being a part of the Complete Intelligence community. Again, visit completeintel.com slash save200 and use the promo code save200 at checkout. Thank you. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. And and Gary, thanks for joining us for the first time this week. I really appreciate the time you guys take for this. Thanks, Um, Tony. Great to be here. David, um, you remained fairly bullish on housing, or I would say not as bearish as many people last year when it got a lot of attention, you kept your head, um, and you saw housing backlogs really as a key driver there. Um, lately, you've really started to think rethink that a bit, and part of this is based on the permits data, which we've got some of that on screen right now, both the uh, percent change and the total permits. Um, which you which were down pretty hard in September, uh, and you say uh, black bo- uh, the backlogs are are pretty played out. Can you walk us through what you're looking at in housing now, and and what you think will play out in the near term? Yeah, um, first of all, thanks for having me. Glad to be here with all with everyone. Um, let's just take a step back into the initial thesis and and how that evolved. And I think when the housing market. Uh, started freezing up, mortgages, rates started mooning, and sales started collapsing. Um, a lot of people conflated that for for the impact on the or for actual economic activity. And in reality, that's just that's just paper shifting. When when people buy a house, there's no new wealth created. I mean, maybe for somebody, but it's it's zero sum. Um, it's a wealth transfer, maybe, but there's no there's no new net wealth created. Kind of like buying stocks. Um, uh, in any case, um, you know, I was focused on actual economic activity that goes into uh, national accounts for GDP accounting. So what really matters uh, for the cycle is uh, construction spending and construction employment. And due to the backlogs, um, those were at all-time highs. So despite sales falling off a cliff and mortgage rates, you know, moonshotting, 
uh, actual economic activity that made it into national GDP accounting uh, remained strong. Uh, in addition, uh, fixed residential investment um, was down, I believe, in Q3, 26%, and Q4, 22%. And I, I kind of hypothesized, well, it doesn't need to get um, necessarily better. It needs to get uh, less bad. Um, and I figured if it got less bad, we could get a, a growth impulse uh, later in the year. And that's exactly what happened. Um, fixed residential investment went from detracting from GDP to becoming mildly additive to GDP. Uh, we just got the GDP report yesterday. Uh, Q3 expectation was uh, for it being uh, 19 basis points additive to GDP, came in line at additive 15 basis points to GDP. So now that's all in the past. I, I think uh, now with that, with the backlogs cleared out, um, you know, we, we need to start paying attention to the data that we used to pay attention to, but that was became kind of noisy and muted due to the backlogs. So with the backlogs out of the way, I think that the, the, the some of the uh, signal in things like permits um, is going to start to matter more now because um, that there are no backlogs to fill that gap anymore, or there's less of them rather uh, to fill that gap. So the expectation that I have is that uh, with that impulse out of the way, um, we will we will see some deceleration not only in the sector but also in the general economy. And um, in fact, today, uh, Atlanta Fed GDP just a few minutes ago, I posted on Twitter, came out with uh, a 2.3 expectation for the fourth quarter uh, of this year. Uh, yesterday, I came out saying uh, 2.5 was my estimate, so I was 20 basis points off. And this is this is a uh, you know fluid thing. But that's that's kind of where we're starting from. Is is that we are we are already baking in uh, a slowdown from the torrid pace of growth we saw in the last quarter. Okay, so two three is kind of more in line with say a slightly above trend growth for the U.S. Right, so four eight or whatever it was uh, yesterday. Obviously, way ahead of of where we kind of should be uh, where we are right now as as an economy. I know you've been very bullish on economic growth all year. Um, which is great. And you've called this excellently. Um, with housing, um, so you're saying you, even with the backlogs cleared, you expect housing, uh, say construction jobs to continue to decline. Is that what you're saying? On the, on the, the answer is on the residential side, yes. I mean, okay. we're, we're still, right now we're, you know, you get, it's a huge market, right? There's industrial, industrial um, construction, there's manufacturing construction, um, and you know there's a lot of IRA money that's going to go into those sectors. But uh, for purposes of tracking the economy, um, I really pay attention to the residential side. The reason is that's the most volatile of mm -hmm. the construction uh, sectors, uh, and that is what typically uh, leads into and out of a recession. So. Mm -hmm. Seven out of 11 post-war recessions have started with a drop in fixed, a significant drop in fixed residential investment. That's kind of been the historical experience. Okay. So, so, so I'm, watch, I'm watching for, I'm watching, I'm watching the residential side. That's, that's the answer. Okay. So can we talk a little bit about uh, median house prices? So if we look at median house prices, they started to fall in Q1 of this year. Um, and it, of course that's local markets, right? You know, San Francisco sure. is not be the same as Houston, Texas or whatever. And Q2 and Q3, that decline accelerated. So can you talk us through what, do you have expectations on say median house price to go in line with your housing thesis? Uh, the answer is not really. And here's why. Again, house prices aren't in and of themselves economic activity, mm -hmm. but for I still watch them for this reason. Uh, rental prices lag housing prices with a 12 to 18 month lag. And as we know, the real sticky part of the of inflation has been OER. Um, I forgot the, I'm, just, I'm having a brain fart now Owners on the acronym. Exactly, thank you. Owners equivalent rent. Um, so that that's kind of been sticky and still at a high single digit level. I believe it's 7.8, the last reading, but you know, tomato, tomato, give or take uh, a mm -hmm. few basis points. It's still high historically. So I think uh, as long as house pressure prices continue to moderate, either outright declines or at least uh, increasing at a, at a slower rate, 
I do think that rental uh, prices uh, will moderate and chip away at that sticky OER. Uh, so that that for me, that that's really why, why I'm watching house prices, not for not for any tells on 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 the economy per se, but on the inflation front. Okay, so I want to come back to that in a second, but I want to also talk about this um, uh, this information we have about home sales, which came out this week. Um, actual home sales in September uh, in the U.S. were 759,000. The expectation was 680,000. Um, and year on year, it's 12.3% growth where it was, or sorry, that's month on month, 12.3% growth. And the expectation was a negative 8% growth. So with housing prices falling, are, are people going in with with cash to buy those houses or why why do we see this a little bit higher than expectations? Well, I, I think that that's a really good um, thing you bring up. And here's, here's, I think, is part of the issue. The number you referenced was for new home sales, mm-hmm. not for existing home sales. The existing home sales market is frozen. There is no action, whether it's, you know, sellers that have a 3% mortgage and don't want to leave it. Or they just, you know, they, they can't pull up the funds for for a, a different. I don't know what for what reason for whatever reason, um, the the existing home sales market is basically sh- frozen shut, um, okay. and so we're seeing a lot of that activity shift to new housing, with, especially with the larger home builders. You know, they're offering the rate buy downs. They've got the balance sheet. They've got the institutional wholesale funding to buy down these mortgage rates. Um, so because of that dynamic. A lot of this is just shifting from existing to new. Okay. Okay. And so let me open this up a little bit. Uh, If we go back to the rent discussion and we look at house prices declining, especially with rent, as rent starts to fall, does that have an impact on service industry inflation? Meaning is the pressure on hourly wages, the upward pressure on hourly wages, is that alleviated a bit if rents start to fall? Uh, the answer is, um, I, I think the answer is no. Rent, uh, wages come first and wages drive rents. So what we're seeing now, we, what we are seeing, though, is uh, a decline in the rate of growth of wages. I believe that came out, the recent, most recent one came out at uh, 4.3. It was previously at 4.5. Um, and, and the the Atlanta Fed does have a wage tracker. If you pull up the gra- a graph of that, um, you will see a precipitous decline in wages over the past uh, few months. Okay. Um, and 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 that's actually what the the Fed is. You know, they have different um, um, link, economic linkages that they're, that they're targeting. And you know, one of them is the real estate channel. The other one is the wage channel. And they're trying to um, address both of those so that they reduce aggregate demand. Ultimately, reducing aggregate demand is what is what they're trying to do. Right. Gary, did you have something on that? Yeah, David, I want to ask you a question uh, on one part of what you were talking about related to the residential market. I agree with you that people, if we're going to say trapped with a 3% mortgage rate, they have an incentive not to sell. And that's kept inventory off the market. It's kept housing prices very high in an 8% mortgage environment where affordability has plummeted. And the question I've got for you is, don't you think one of the things that will help bring this in equilibrium, meaning more transactions at lower prices, is people will often sell houses for non-financial reasons, right? Like a a birth or, you know, somebody ages and, and they're going to assisted living or change in job. And so this is one of those things where, you know, people might be able to hold off for a while, but at some point life circumstances mean you have to dump the 3% mortgage and deal with whatever your current life situation is. Don't you think that ends up bringing more inventory on the market and bringing prices more into equilibrium? By equilibrium, I mean more transactions at lower housing prices, particularly with 8% mortgages. Uh, the answer is yes, but that, that's a slower moving. It's a question about this. Uh, the answer is yes. It's a question about what rate and does that happen in time to you know, unlock that market to make it economically beneficial. So, you know, if, if all these things you mentioned are, are life things that you know you can probably kick the can on for a year or a year or two. Eventually, yes, you got to face reality. You know, if you if you got you know if you're an empty nester, your kids are off to college, and you just don't need that four thousand square foot McMansion or whatever it is you have. 
Um, yeah, at some point, reality kicks in, but it's, um, you know, to make it cyclically important, I don't think, uh, I think we're in a different kind of bind right now um, for that to make a difference. Heads up for a short break. Are you using the potential of AI in your portfolio management strategies? With an impressive 94.7% forecast accuracy on average, you can confidently integrate AI into your approach with CI markets. Visualize the potential volatility of your portfolio over the next 12 months and gain insights into specific assets that might experience fluctuations. This empowers you to make informed decisions on when to buy, sell, or hold. CI Markets covers a wide range of over 1,600 assets including stocks, commodities, forex, indices, and economic indicators. Imagine running limitless portfolio scenarios to optimize your gains. Curious about the outcome of removing or adding certain assets? Wondering how your portfolio might evolve in the next 3, 6, or 12 months? CI Markets equips you with answers to these crucial questions. Whether you seek a streamlined portfolio analysis, wish to explore diverse scenarios, or aspire to track your investments with precision, CI Markets is the ultimate tool for you. Ready to learn more? Visit us at completeintel.com markets. Thank you. And now back to the show. Thanks. Can I ask you guys another, another kind of probably weird question, but with the, the amount of money on credit cards in the U.S., could credit card debt push a segment of the population to sell their homes? Because I, I, that's been kind of rolling around in my head for a few months, and I've never really looked into the research on that. But could that be something that could move the housing market? Yes, somebody has a 3% loan or a segment of the population has a 3% loan, but they've had to put so much on credit cards over the last two or three years, and that's kind of bursting at the seams. So could that be something that pushes the housing market, or is that just too on the edge that it's really not going to impact that much? Um, I would think, uh, you know, as long as employment stays low or unemployment stays low, employment high, um, I, I think it's a non-issue because you know, as long as people can service their debt um, and, you know, make their hit their monthly or whatever, look, you know, a lot of houses are owned free and clear. I don't know what the number is. I know it's at a historical uh, high where there's a lot of equity. Uh, I mean, granted that with rates are where they are, that equity, that cost of equity is expensive, but it's probably cheaper than your credit card debt. So I think, I think at, at the macro aggregate level, um, there's a ton of housing equity that can cover um, any short shortfalls for a while, uh, as long as employment, the employment picture stays okay, which right now this is, it's still a hot, by all definitions, it's still a hot labor market. Okay, great. So I, go ahead. Go ahead, Trish. I, I, I had a question while we were on this. Do you foresee any problem right now with repayment of student loans and say new first-time home buyers and or renters coming onto the market and having that cause some kind of uh ripple in that market, in the housing market? I, I don't. I think I think the the Student loan issues overblown from a macro standpoint. Again, look at the they, the numbers sound big and scary, but when you my, my heuristic is take whatever macro doom problem you have divided by um, um, nominal GDP, and you probably get a really small number. And typically, it's not en enough uh, big enough to really make a difference at the aggregate level. I mean, this is a, this is a twenty seven trillion dollar uh, nominal economy. It is huge. Last quarter, in one quarter alone we grew the size of New Zealand's GDP. Just let that sink in for a moment, how big this economy is. So when you take a problem like student loans, I don't know exactly what the number is, a couple hundred billion, and you divide it by nominal GDP, you end up with you know, you know, a small number. David, I agree with you. One thing I'd add to that as well is for all the talk about our very high credit card debt, and granted it has gone up a lot, but one of the things people don't add to their evaluation of that is inflation, right? So if we go from a certain level of credit card debt to a higher level, part of that, yeah, it's it's more nominal dollars, but what does it actually represent as a percentage of household budgets, right? And so the issue that you're talking about, right, how much does this matter in terms of GDP, that also plays out at the household level as well. How much does this play out in terms of our assets or our high sure. income, again, in nominal right. dollars? Right. It, it puts it puts consumers in the 
privileged position of being a um, uh, a debtor in a higher than, than normal inflation regime, which means it deflates. You know, your debt is not nominally fixed, but if, as long as inflation remains high, it gets deflated over time, especially if your wages rise. If your wages continue to rise, that real burden falls over time. It's kind of like what you know governments do all the time, deflate their debt. Okay, so great info on housing. How do I, what action can I take as a result of, like, what are you watching as a result of where housing is right now and what's happening in housing markets? Uh, I'm actually watching the home builders. Look, I had a fantastic trade last, first half of last year, killed it, uh, took off risk in uh, middle of August. Uh, it was partially, you know, I got, you know, vibes and partially I was going on vacation and I don't like having <laughs> risk on when I'm on vacation. Um, I got lucky, part, partly. Um, but, you know, th- since since midsummer, uh, late summer, housing housing stocks have been, they've been hit hard. Um, but I think once we see some normalization, in the yield curve, anything that any, any trade that involves uh, borrowing uh, low and lending high, a normalized yield curve, is gonna is gonna potentially make do really well. Though mm-hmm. so home builders being very levered to the economic cycle, home builders using their institutional buying power to you know buy down rates and and deal with that. Um, I think once we see some normalization in the curve, and we're starting to see that. Uh, you know, once we see some normalization in the curve, I think uh, the home home builders could be in play again. I'm looking at that. I'm also looking at, um, you know, uh, you know, Annalee Mortgage and REM, similar type of uh, uh, business. Uh, the, the mortgage REITs, um, they basically they're basically just levered, you know, levered borrow borrow uh, borrow near land high um, operations, and I think those those trades could do really well. Perfect. That's great. I love it when an extraordinarily smart person attributes their success to luck. It's just, it's so humble. (laughs) Thanks for that. I love it. (laughs) I've burned my hand on the stove enough times to know that, you know, I don't know all the answers. (laughs) Yeah. I'll take luck over intelligence any day of the week. Okay. Let's move on to the Fed and bonds. Gary, one of your recent tweets says that the Fed has lost control I want to hear about that. Your your tweets um, about this saying that Powell acknowledges that the bond vigilantes are in control. Can you talk about that? And why is that important? And what near-term impacts do you expect? Sure. Thanks, Tony. So the key thing is the the last at the last Fed meeting, the Fed kept interest rates flat. So they basically paused three months ago. And one of the things he acknowledged, which I think is accurate, is he said the bond market is doing a lot of the Fed's work for him. And he's right about that. So if we go back three months to the last time the Fed raised rates, we had the yield curve where it was. And in the three months since then, the short end of the curve, right, the Fed funds rate, uh, you know, through the three-month treasury have all traded about flat. Well, the Fed funds rate has been completely flat. But the long end of the curve, the 10-year, the 20-year, the 30-year, have all traded up about 100 basis points. And roughly half of that move has come in the last month, the last four weeks. So what he's recognizing is that the bond market is starting to price the long end of the curve at a much higher yield than it was, despite the fact that the Fed hasn't done anything. And so he's saying, wait a minute, the the bond market's going to slow down the economy for me. We don't need to do as much. And I think he's right about that. But to me, the key point is, let's take a look at why the bond market is reacting the way it is. And we got this great question. Um, I forget who it was, but somebody on Twitter asked this brilliant question. Wait a minute. We've got higher bond yields and gold and Bitcoin are going up. What in the world is going on here? And my assertion is that all three of those markets and Powell are all watching Congress. So we have a situation now where we had this, you know, budget deal back in June, July, where, you know, both sides pretended that there was this horrible, long, bitter six-month fight, but we all knew the end result was going to be a solution that just guaranteed more and more and more spending. And they agreed on a solution that would result in an excess of $4 trillion of spending and the roughly year and a half between then and the next election. It's always amazing to me how they always finance it through the next election, right? Of because because of course, right, we're, we're not concerned about our jobs. We're not being selfish or self-interested where this is what we're doing for the American people. Okay. Gary, job, they're guys. all on the same side. I, I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree. We have one party. 
Um, and, you know, one, one of the things that I've said is, you know, the Republican financial plan is like being a waiter and coming to the table and saying, you know, by the way, if you'd like, we've got a Republican plan for your dinner. I'm going to put enough poison in your dinner to kill you. And the Democratic plan is we'll sure. offer you more poison than that. Either way, you're dead. Right. I mean, what's what's the difference? So, I, you know, I and if there's anybody in Washington, the people that are serious are saying, we'll give you your poison with dessert and acting like that's a favor. So, you know, what's happened here mm -hmm. is they've agreed to overspend by $4 trillion over less than two years. Okay. And this is all happening with higher interest rates. So let's just take that $4 trillion of spending. They're going to monetize. It was just a fancy way of saying there'll be more currency units created. If you assume a 5% rate on that, great. That's another more than $200 billion over the next two years. That's just the interest on the excess spending for the next two years. Add to that the fact that we've got you know, 10-year uh, securities rolling off with a rate of you know 1%, less than 1%. They're replacing that with 5% paper. And what we're looking at is a situation where interest expense for the federal government was $400 billion a decade ago. It was $600 billion a couple of years ago. It's now a trillion dollars heading for in the next couple of years, somewhere between $1.5 and $2 trillion. So let's add that to the calculation. And basically, Congress is going to monetize another maybe $5 trillion over the next year and a half. And that's assuming they're on budget. Anybody wants to take the under on that, I will take that bet right now. Mm. Uh, and so what, what happens now is you have more currency units being created. In this case, it's the dollar, the fiat dollar. And it's chasing the same amount of goods in the economy. And all we've done is replace the meme that we've had over the last decade. We've all seen the meme of, of Powell and the Fed making the money printer go burr, right? Well, great. Now it's Congress. And so what's happening right now is the bond market, the Federal Reserve, the gold market, and the Bitcoin market are all watching Congress. And yeah, we'll watch Powell's press conferences and we'll be interested in what they do next. But the truth is at this point, it's the bond market that has control and they're watching Congress. And Tony, as you've pointed out, there is, other than Rand Paul, there is no one in Congress even making noises about being fiscally responsible. So there's just okay. going to be unlimited currency creation. Okay, so let me let me take a step back and ask a couple of questions. And David and Tracy jump in here. But you started out talking about the Fed and the bond guys kind of taking over. David talked about how the uh, service wages are going down and other indicators that the Fed has kind of managed are kind of moving in the direction. So the Fed has handed off some of their work to these bond vigilantes, whether they wanted to or not, right? Service wages are coming down as a result. So uh, from my perspective, although I don't love to love these guys, it sounds like the Fed's job is being done. Is that fair? I think the Fed... So I think what created the problem was more than a decade of zero or near zero rates. Of course. The, yeah. Okay. I'm talking about their job like right now. Let's say over the past two to three years. I mean, yeah. their job is is kind of being done. I mean, we don't want to acknowledge that and we don't want to say we like the Fed, but their their job is kind of being done. David, do you do you agree with that? I mean, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah. Um it's a question of what, what what do you think their job is? Um, if if you take the, you know the the inflation the, right now. If yeah, so inflation is is we're dis we're we're having experiencing a disinflationary impulse. Um, you know, there's no argument there. Uh, the question is, you know, what's the, the what does the future look like based on what you know Gary's saying? And I respect what he said. I'll just take it as truth. Then maybe not. Um, Right. Maybe they're not doing their job. And if you look at nominal, you know, my favorite metric is nominal GDP. Uh, right now, as of yesterday, 8.5%. Uh, it's not in line with their target. Their target is around 4, 4.5%. 5 would be in the high side, but we can probably, you know, excuse that away. If you use nominal GDP as, as a metric, the answer is no, they're failing. Okay. That's, the, that's the answer. So it, it really depends. It really depends how, you, how what, what's your metric? Okay, that's you great. Know, that's perfect. David, great. I would add one thing to what you're saying, which is a huge part of nominal GDP right now is government spending. 
right? And, and we have this really weird quirk in the way we calculate this, where government spending is additive to GDP, uh, nominal or adjusted, whether it creates value or not, right? And we've all heard, you know, the, the, the constant uh, example of, you know, you pay half the country to dig ditches, the other half to fill in ditches. And if the government pays for it, we're adding that to GDP. I, I agree with you, Tony, that the Fed has done the right thing right now. The problem is everything the Fed is doing, Congress is undoing, and they have diffuse responsibility. My belief, and one of the reasons why I have believed Powell over the last two years when he's been screaming higher for longer and the whole market said, ah, he doesn't mean it. He's going to pause. He's going to pivot. Right? We've heard all that. And I'm like, no, no, no. The reason I believe this is because I think Powell is terrified of being the next Arthur Burns, and he wants to be the next Volcker. He does not want to have his last job in the public sphere being the next guy who failed on inflation. The issue he's got is he's now fighting Congress and they have diffuse responsibility and they will blame everybody but themselves for the inflation that will inevitably come when they monetize the next two, three, five, six trillion dollars of currency units. They'll blame Vladimir Putin. They'll blame greedy corporations because, you know, corporations only became greedy in 2021. Yes. They didn't want to make profits before that. So I, I think they've done the right thing, but they're like the Bank of Japan. And I know you guys were talking about this in a recent episode. Um, they're stuck. There's there's nothing they can do to go forward or backwards. And whatever they do is being undone in uh, in Congress right now. Okay. So Tracy, you keep nodding yes. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have I've I've been saying that and I think this problem's going to get worse headed into an election year because this administration is going to do everything they can to avoid a recession. Obviously, nobody wants a recession. You know, they want to get reelected. And I know everybody says, yeah, but we have the House that's, you know dominated by republicans but you know but they're wishy-washy they spend as much as everyone else I mean, right. like you know let's yeah. call, it, call a spade a spade right so right. i just think this problem is going to get worse and we're going to still have monetary policy butting up against fiscal policy in my opinion so let me ask all of you guys this maybe gary really can expand on that yeah but but so um david's talked about nominal gdp not overheating, but accelerating, right? We've got a disinflationary environment. And um, Gary's talking about uh, Congress doing trillions of dollars of additional spending. But unless we have kind of a recession or an emergency, how are they going to justify a multi-trillion dollar spending plan? Well, they've already additional, done that. Additional. That, but that, that's where we are now. Right. I mean, we had a situation where we had GDP growth, insanely low unemployment, rising wages, um, a, an economy that was in really good shape and high levels of government spending. Remember, every time we've had a so-called emergency, we ramp up spending and then that's the new baseline. And we saw that in 2008. Right. We took the, the baseline spending from the TARP plan and a trillion dollars of supposedly shovel ready plan. Oh, yeah. uh, Right. All, all of that was the new baseline. Then we had COVID spending. That was a one-time emergency. That's now the baseline. And so they've already, they passed $2 trillion of, uh, you know, hilariously named inflation reduction as if the government pouring another $2 trillion of currency into the economy was going to lower prices for people. We're already at insane levels of spending and nobody's showing any signs of slowing down. Uh, you know, who, here's the better question, Tony, who in Congress is going to stop the next big spending bill? Well, okay, so that's a great question, but if this is going to happen anyway, why should we worry about it? I mean, I hate to be so fatalistic, but if we know this is going to happen anyway, why does it matter? I think it matters because if you have a situation with fiscal dominance, uh, if we move to a regime of, uh, we have, we're, already, we're already in a regime of fiscal dominance. The question is, um, does monetary policy um offset that and try to keep uh, nominal, nominal and real GDP at a sustainable level? Or does the Fed have to do a monetary offset? Uh, I'm sorry, do, do, do they avoid monetary offset? And then policy goes off the rails. Um, and to Gary's point, I don't think that would happen uh, because 
Volker, I'm sorry, um, Powell is concerned about his legacy. And I think he cares about the institution as well. I think he's a, you know, he's trying his best as a public servant. Um, and I, I think if, if, the, if fiscal dominance does overreach, I think the Fed will uh, deliver monetary offset. And the way that will express itself it will be in the, you know, in the, in the, in the yield curve. We'll see higher yields, higher for, even higher or higher for longer. Heads up for a short break. In the fast-paced world of investments, staying informed is the key to success. Introducing CI Markets Free, your source for AI-powered forecasts. With our free version, you get access to powerful tools that help you make informed decisions. Join a community of savvy investors. Analyze market trends. Plan your investments strategically. Stay ahead with monthly forecasts. Compare assets effortlessly. And download data for your analysis. Don't just take our word for it. Our users love the valuable insights CI Markets provides. Get started today with CI Markets free. No credit card required. CI Markets, your source for AI-powered forecasts. Thank you. And now back to the show. Higher or for longer? Okay, great. With lots of, with lots of ERs at the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like... Uh, it's like Abenomics from 2012 until whenever. It just kind of became more and more intense, right? Um, so we could have a you know something similar here. So um, Gary, just back to your uh, your report that you sent me. Um, inflation targeting is something that obviously is talked about, and one of your reports talks about that. Can you can you talk about how changing the inflation target would matter in an environment like this? Yeah, so it, it's a great question because what we're seeing right now are a large number of people saying, oh, well, we can fix the problem by changing the inflation target, right? I mean, this is like, you know, you're a marathoner and you get to the 24 mile mark and somebody's like, ah, close enough, let's just stop. <laughs> okay, great, but that's not effective. Um, let's, you know, Tony, you've been, and in my opinion, correctly critical of the Federal Reserve. I'm 100% with you. And let's talk for just one second about the danger of the existing uh, discussion. And everybody sort of accepts 2% as the correct, reasonable, moral, fine inflation target, right? We all just sort of, it's, it's and it's only 2%, right? You pay a dollar for something one year, and it's a dollar two next year, and who cares? It's small, nobody, okay, this is theft. Because over a 40-year working life, and most people have a 40-year working career, a 2% inflation rate, people forget about compounding, destroys 55% of the value of your money, right? That is value that is going from you to the government and the ability to do that is called senior. It's just a fancy word for stealth stealing by the government. And so people say, oh, well, you know, what's the big deal? We'll just move the inflation rate to 3% or 4%. Okay, well, let's talk about the implications of that. A 4% inflation rate over that same 40-year working life for people takes 79% of your money, four out of every $5, right? And there are people- so What you're who, saying is I get to keep 21% of it. Yeah, right. Congratulations, <laughs> right? Fiat, <laughs> fiat economics. It's, it's phenomenal for everybody. And so, you know, part of the problem is they only steal a little bit at a time. And that, by the way, that's assuming you believe the CPI. I don't. Right. I think CPI is hugely understated. OER, which, you know, you and David were talking about earlier is a huge reason why that's a, a big part of it. Um, but because they're stealing slowly and quietly and no one really knows who to blame and Congress can blame everybody, people sort of they let it go. But the real correct moral rate of inflation is zero. Two percent is itself obscene, but going to four percent and you're losing, like you said, you get to keep 21 cents out of every dollar you make over your working career. Pre-taxes. Yeah, right. Pre exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So they're stealing from you in a lot of ways. Um, but at least taxes, people know who to be angry about. Inflation is stealth stealing. And so, you know, what we're seeing, what one of the things that I think is really interesting is last week, uh, one of the leading candidates in Argentina promised his people no taxes. This was not a President Bush, no new taxes. This was no <laughs> taxes. He's not offering to cut the massive size of the Argentinian government. Basically, what he's saying is we will pay for 100% of our spending in inflation. 
And, you know, the Congress, rather than viewing that at the U.S. Congress, rather than viewing that as a warning, is saying, oh, wait, that's a great model. We can <laughs> tax people on an unlimited amount with this. And, and we won't get voted out of office. We can now be the Santa Claus of free stuff. We can be the Santa Claus of low taxes and we can blame inflation and everybody but ourselves. And it, it doesn't matter. It still ends in disaster either way. And so, you know, to anyone listening to this, I, I would strongly suggest that the next time you hear somebody talking about, oh, just, you know, raise the inflation rate and that'll solve the problem, push back on that. Mm -hmm. Help people understand that inflation is the way a government harnesses the currency to take money from you without you noticing, but it's still theft. Yeah, but it's just four percent, Gary. <laughs> and and once and by the way, here's the best one, right? We remember every time the you know a, a taxing authority, whether it's a state or the federal government in the United States, income taxes it always starts at one percent and it's temporary, mm -hmm. and that worked its way up to ninety percent tax rates at one point, and nothing is ever temporary. And so I promise you, if we don't hold the line on this and we say, okay, fine, we agree to 4%, does anyone here think it'll stay at 4%? There's no way in the world, right? Tracy, yeah. what's next? Six, eight, 10? Exactly. So, okay. Sounds like my, prop my property taxes, they, I think they've doubled since oh, yeah. uh, we, we moved uh, into the suburbs. <laughs> I live in Texas. We have very high property taxes. No state income tax, but we make up for it in property tax, so... Okay, Gary, that's that's all great. Thank you for for all of that. Let's move on to commodities. Um, Tracy, um, we have seen a lot a, a lot of upward pressure on soft commodities, really since the pandemic. Uh, things like cocoa, orange juice, sugar, cattle. What's happening with these soft commodities to push up those prices? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at each one of these individually because they have their own unique right. set of problems you're having. So for cocoa, for instance, we have um, most of those crops are located in West Africa. West Africa crop is doing poorly. Obviously, you know, bean deliveries and ports on the Ivory Coast are about 16% behind this season. I won't go into total details, but uh, again, it's a weather issue as well. El Nino's threatening dryness in West Africa, et cetera. So that's because, uh, so cocoa is really because of the crop is really uh, in one specific area. A lot of the crops are in one specific area. If we look at sugar, for example, uh, we have a deficit that's grown as a result of poor Indian Thai crops, which are huge. We also have issues in Latin America right now in Colombia and also in North America in Mexico. And so uh, we're having issues there. If we look at cattle, or I, I, I don't, I think cattle was on your thing, but it's not a soft. So let's move to OJ. Um, so if we look at Florida is a really interesting case because it's the largest orange juice or it's the largest orange crop producer in the world. And for the very first time this year, California is going to beat us. Um, oh, wow. and really, we have had our worst orange crop in the last 70 years. And this is due to several problems that are really unique. Well, one, it, hurricanes, that's not right? So we've had weather-related issues. We also have a deadly disease called uh, citrus greening, which is an invasive Asian bug, essentially. Um, but what is unique to Florida and really different is that what is happening is as people are moving into the state, those properties are actually being sold. Those crop properties are actually being sold to residential home construction. <laughs> So, um, so this is what is happening in, in, in particularly the orange juice market in Florida. Hey, um, Tracy, it's a question for you. Um, you know, you mentioned California. You know, California has been in a drought for a long time. And up until I believe it's last year, um, they've gotten so much rain. Uh, they are no longer in drought conditions. And in fact, uh, you know, some of the areas where I grew up in the Central Valley, um, some of the uh, lakes that were drained and uh, you know, dikes and levees were put up for uh, the irrigation system um, have returned. So you've got these, really, you know, yeah, 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 wow. yeah. There's I, I, Lake Tulare, I believe it's called, um, was filled in in the 1800s, and it's now uh, it's now refilled. And yeah, farmers, you know, they've they've you know, this whole system was uh, developed around far farmer interest, 
and looks like Mother Nature just took over uh, and said, you know, too bad. Um, but I, I, uh, is the causality of California getting more involved in the uh, citrus market due to the rehydration of the state, or is that just some other factor? I think I'm just curious. I, yeah, I think it's definitely helping, right? It's not, but we really haven't seen the results of that yet. We really won't know for a couple more seasons how that really pans out. Yes, their crop, their 23, 24 crop is much larger than it's been, but I think we need to give it a couple more seasons to see how really those weather patterns filter into um, actual production. Tracy, any thoughts on on fertilizer? Because you, you're talking about these increases in prices. Uh, there have been fertilizer shortages. I know Russia has declined to export to certain parts of the world that we would care about in this case. Um, where where do people get fertilizer now and how much is that impacting all of the issues that you're talking about? Yeah, well, I think right now, obviously, we saw that big run up in 2021 to 2022. Uh, where we had a, a lot of shortages. We saw a big spike in prices. Everything's come back down to normalized prices now uh, because that market sort of calmed down a little bit. But I think what we really need to focus on right now is the drought situation in the Mississippi River because what's happening is that's impacting not only what farmers, which farmers use that Mississippi River to send their goods to the Gulf Coast to be exported elsewhere, which is huge. Um, and with lower river levels, that means that you either can't pass through <laughs> and or uh, higher shipping costs because you need to split your uh, your product and to make your vessel lighter. Um, and so we're also seeing problems with that in, uh, in shipping fertilizer. And then again, in Florida, Florida is a huge uh, fertilizer producer has also been impacted over the last two seasons in, for uh, for hurricane, during hurricane season. So uh, we need to keep an eye out on it. I'm not that worried about it right now, but it's definitely worth keeping an eye on, especially if we start to see some sort of rise in natural gas prices, which if you look at the weekly chart right now, we're just about starting to break out. We could have problems in Europe this winter. So if we see a, a spike in natural gas prices again, you'll probably see a spike in uh, corresponding spike in fertilizer prices as well. Okay, before we go on to NatGas, because I would do want to ask you some bonus questions on NatGas, but I do want to say that whenever I see ag prices spike, the first thing that I think of, you know what it is? Coffee prices. So, <laughs> You're like, <laughs> I get to I know, I know why. Nobody I guessed know it. Why. And so much to, much, to my, much to my relief, coffee prices are down 40% from the peak. So we're not seeing the, you know, the run up in coffee prices like we are with some of the other softs, which is whew, such a relief. So, okay. So Tracy, can you talk us through some of the NatGas drama that's happened this week? Um, I know that's, you know, there's been a lot of noise about it. I just want to help people understand what's happening in those markets. Well, we've had, well, first of all, the obvious, obviously, being the Israel-Hamas conflict, right? And they shut down the Tamar field uh, right off the coast of Israel. However, I will say that's relegated to being a regional issue more than a global issue, being that Jordan is the main importer uh, of Israeli gas from that particular field. So they're more impacted than anything else. There is a pipeline to Egypt, so that means less exports out of Egypt. But again, I think the problem is mostly regional. It's not really, you know, I think we saw a kick up in prices initially, obviously, because everybody, because of because of the region, right? We saw a kick up in oil prices as well. Um, and then we had the first cold snap, cold snap in Europe. And I think that got the market a little bit jittery. And so I think that's what... Yeah, I think that's what the market is reacting to right now. But I do think Europe is not out of the problem. You have to realize their storage may be 90% full, mm. but that 90% is only 25% of what they use during the whole winter, <laughs> right? So it's not like their storage, we're 95% we're full, so we're good all winter long. No, it's right. not really how it works and so if we do have a colder winter they're still not out of the woods yet 
I'm, you know, if manufacturing picks up for some reason, I don't know what that would be, but if it does, then you're right. also have a, you're also going to have a better problem. So it's a, a definitely a market to watch right now. And if we're just looking at it from, uh, you know, from a, a technical standpoint, this market is very, very short. So any kind of breakout, you could very easily see a short squeeze. Yep. And just for reference, um, NACAS is up over 10% today on Friday. Oh, wow. Uh, and the price uh, right now at 350 um, is about half of what the price was a year ago at seven, just over seven bucks. Yeah. I mean, so, you have to really, we just spent almost eight, nine months flat. Right. right exactly. We were a month consolidation, ago, so. 260 or something like that. Right. So, um, so this, this rise is really, is really coming on fast. And I don't know, do you think we'll get to the levels that we were at last year or do you think we'll get past that? I, well, I, I'm not a weather expert, so I have to see it is an El Nino year. Who knows what could happen? Right. Who knows what could happen geopolitically? So, you know, those are all things that you could, you know, you need to watch. Do I think, you know, right now, if exports continue out of the uh, Middle East, you know, because everybody wants to do business as usual, even with bomb squad, we've yep. seen that in the past. In um, Texas, they can always do business with Texas. That's good. And they can always do business with Texas. Exactly. But I could see, you know, I could see a short a squeeze to five, six dollars easily. I don't know about okay. hitting highs, you know, but again, I, you know, I don't want to be a person that, you know. Hey, Tracy, I'm, I'm an armchair weatherman only because, um, you know, I'm a snowboarder and I, I plan my my snowboarding trips far in advance. Um, and I know it's going to be a really good uh, season. There, there's already snow in uh, Jackson Hole. There's snow in Mount Hood, Washington. Uh, so I don't know if it's an El Nino effect or some other effect, but uh, it's going to be an epic snowboarding season. And so I'm getting my stuff ready. Um, so I don't know how that impacts um, you know natural gas prices, but I'm looking forward to the to the, to the weather. Like it, I'm, I'm with you. Snowboarder skier. I'm a skier, but I'll take it. Right. All right, guys. Hey, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for all the stuff that you guys have talked about. This has really been really educational for me. I know you guys put time into it and a lot of thoughts. So I just want to thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Have a great week ahead. Thank you. Thank you all. Take care. Thanks. Bye. That's it for this week's episode of The Week Ahead. Please don't forget to rate us and review on whatever platform you are watching or listening to this. Thank you.